Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. The following program contains adult content and sexual themes. Viewer discretion is advised. And it contains murder. Lots and lots of murder. You stinking bastard. People dumb and shit. You're gonna go die and go to hell. At least I'm not blown. Time for that one more. Where's your emergency? Oh, this is Katie. For 31 work. Watch him in the road. What's the problem? One in the chest, one in the head. Fired by Detective Sergeant Roger Rogerson. I was uh, branching out. That's when the cannibalism started. Eating of the heart and uh, the arm muscle. Oh, oh we're now Carl Williams' hands for a coffee table with this and just pulled it out of his backside. Carl Williams is a wobbly bottom little cher- cherub face, cherub face little boy who would, who, who would, who's, who's life would be. I harm someone each time I. Kill someone to be an enormous amount, uh, especially at first. Uh, enormous amount of uh, horror, guilt, remorse afterwards. But then that impulse to do it again would come back even stronger. Hi, I'm Barney Black. And I'm Tara Sarah. And we do Bloody Murder. We're a comedy true crime podcast focusing on some of the lesser known crime stories from Australia and indeed around the globe. What will you be covering this week, Barney? Well, what will we be covering? It was a trick question. We're doing a special. We're going to be talking about Carl Williams. He's been described in many ways. Mm-hmm. Crime bus. Serial killer. Prison snitch. Loving father and husband. Gutless coward. And scum cleansing hero. Well, it's going to be a doddler. Oh, it's going to be a big one. It's going to be a cracker. Yeah, so we're joining forces again, like we, we did with Chopper, That's to go right. into some more Australian underworld stuff. And it is juicy. <laughs> now, of course, this episode is brought to you by our wonderful and generous patrons. Thank you very much. Thank um, you. And if you'd like to become a patron, go to our website for details. That's bloodymurderpodcast.com. Okay, Tara, let's get murdery. Let's do it. Let's get murdery. Chopper Reed described Carl Williams as a wobbly-bottomed, cherub-faced little boy whose life would be in danger if he stepped into any jail block in the country. And that proved to be quite true. It did. Nostradamus, our Chopper is. He is. And the Australian public's regard for Carl Williams vacillates between cult legend and merciless, simpering, dumbass criminal. That's true. By the end of the self-proclaimed Premier's reign, he participated in, or ordered, somewhere between 7 to 12 murders in a Melbourne gangland war that viciously claimed over 30 lives. When Carl met his shocking and brutal demise in Barwon Prison's maximum security unit, he left behind a long bloody road of cold-blooded murders, an underworld burnt to the ground and a police force stinking of corruption. Carl Williams was underestimated by most as a lazy, stupid, fat dickhead. But the bogan boy from Broadmeadows rose to the top of the Melbourne drug trade and heaven help anyone who got in his way. Uh, Absolutely. 
Carl Anthony Williams was born on October 13, 1970 to George and Barbara Williams. At the time, his family was living a tough blue-collar existence. George was digging sewer ditches in Richmond and Barbara was working long shifts at a Collingwood cigar factory. Cigarette factory? That's right. Hey. George also hustled at pool and cards. Between getting his wife's sister Kathleen pregnant what? and participating in some minor criminal activities. Yeah, well, um, he kept it in the family, that's for sure. Yeah, they had a little boy, apparently. And, yeah, who um, Carl thought was his cousin, but it was actually his half-brother. Yeah, that's right. He found out many, many years later. Mm, there are so many twists and turns in this sordid tale. <laughs> By 1973, things were looking up for the Williamses when they moved out of their North Richmond hovel into a brand spanking new three-bedroom house in the developing suburb of Broadmeadows. $12,000 is how much they paid for that oh, house. Oh, $12,000 in 1973. Oh, nice. my God. Where's my time machine and my, like, $11,000? I probably could do the one. <laughs> Carl's father, George, was hardworking but not exactly honest. Mm -hmm. He got a new job as a debt collector but he was uh, also fencing stolen goods and growing marijuana on the side. Barbara also had a change in career, processing bets at the local TAB. Yeah, the tab. The tab. Um, that's what we call it in Australia. I'm sure it has other names elsewhere. But basically it's where people go to bet on horses and the doggies and sport, all that kind of Would stuff. Would you like me to put that sentence in an, uh, an example sentence for you? I'm going down to the tab to put a tenor on the GGs. Perfect. All right. Beautiful. In the early 1980s, while trying to fleece a mark playing pool, George was glassed in the face. This caused him to lose the sight in one eye. His days of hustling pool and cards were now over. The man who attacked George was found dead soon after, a needle hanging out of his arm. Someone had given him a hot shot. Although George Williams was suspected, he was never charged for that murder. I wonder if 12-year-old Carl ever saw that flame of murderous revenge burning in his father's one good eye. Or in his dead eye. Well, either way. Or in his brown eye. No. Oh, no, I hope that wasn't on offer. Carl was a lazy teenager with his mother Barbara waiting on him hand and foot. Carl's dog, Ozzy, that's a Pomeranian, must have learned his slothful ways. A Pomeranian? That's a tough guy dog, if ever I've heard of one. <laughs> on, the, on the rare occasion when Carl would walk him, Ozzy would refuse to walk after a certain point and Carl would have to carry him home. Okay, that is not normal dog behaviour. They're that's normally not. full of beans and oh. they want to stay out longer. Maybe he just fed him KFC. Like what, oh, what like Carl what he fed eating. himself. Apparently yeah. Carl lived... Pretty much exclusively, unlike just Maccas and KFC and junk food and like sugary soft drink. Hmm. He had so much money, but that's what he chose to put into his body. And that's probably why they called him Fat Boy. I don't know, but I feel like there might be a connection. He was uh, portly. He was somewhat portly. He was tall and portly. And he had a very angelic face. And he smiled easily. So he just, he looked out of place as a crim. But trust me, he was doing the shit. Carl attended Broadmeadows Technical School, where in year 11 he was accused of sexually assaulting a female classmate in the girls' dunnies. Rather than face the scandal, Carl just left. His first job was stacking shelves in a local supermarket, and apparently he was not good at it. <laughs> uh, that was followed by a stint at a glazing apprenticeship. But these entry-level jobs weren't for him. So Carl put his energy into becoming a semi-professional gambler, but that didn't last long. After being banned from Crown Casino, Carl decided to focus on growing his weed-selling business. By the late 80s, Carl's older brother Shane was a full-blown junkie. 
buying his gear off the notorious Moran brothers, but more on them later. Oh, much more on them later. In 1989, Shane Weems did a one-year prison stint for theft. No doubt he needed stolen stereos and VCRs to feed his habit. Well, uh, back in the day, that's what you used to steal. Oh, no, beta. Yeah, oh, no, we can't play any of our VHS on a beta machine. So Carl's 21st birthday was a typical suburban bogan affair. Cake, balloons and kegs of beer in the double garage of his parents' Broadmeadows home. All went well at first until a fight broke out between Carl and his brother Shane. Chairs were smashed and tables were turned and all kinds of insults were hurled. But Barbara, the peacemaker, was nowhere to be seen. According to witnesses, she was off banging Carl's old school friend Terry Tolver down the side of the house. Mm, Bogans. Salacious. Mm. It was around this time that George Williams injured his back in a workplace accident. Now on workers' compo... George started a high-stakes poker ring in his garage. Well, it makes sense. This is where his son Carl met Kiwi Joe. Kiwi Joe had a good supply of illegal chemicals and uh, showed Carl how to cook speed. Carl was a natural, inventing an ecstasy-like tablet by combining ketamine and speed. It was cheap to make and was undercutting everything on the market. Which made the people he was undercutting pretty angry. The dollars were flying in. By the mid-1990s, George was helping his son Carl build his business too. Ah, oh, isn't that nice when fathers and sons bond That's a family over business. business ventures? Carl decided to share his winning recipe with his new friends, the Moran brothers, for a cut of the profits, of course. Jason and Mark Moran were born into criminal royalty, their family being gangsters for generations. Louis Moran was not Mark's biological father. Mark was born to Judy's previous husband, notorious crim Leslie John Cole, who was shot dead in a Sydney drug-related hit in 1982. Well, Judy certainly had a type. Maybe this is why Louis gave him a particularly bad time as a kid. He was not his real son. As a result, Mark suffered anxiety and depression in later years. It was widely known he tried to take his own life several times. In one attempt, he shoved dozens of ecstasy tablets in his rectum. Well, if that's not a cry for help, I don't know what is. Pingers in the butt. Pingers in the butt. Dozens of pingers. Too many pingers in the butt. That's too many pingers in the butt. That is too many pingers in the butt. It really is. Aw, Mark. The Moran brothers looked down their noses at cowardly tubby Carl. They treated him like a houseboy, and when he complained about not getting his cut, they kept putting him off for about a year before refusing to pay his $1 million in commissions. Carl was humiliated. Uh Uh-oh. In 1997, Carl's brother Shane died of a heroin overdose. The Williamses were devastated. Whilst George and Barbara Williams were falling apart, Carl stepped up and organised the whole funeral. The fact that heroin had killed Shane didn't put the Williams family off selling drugs in the slightest. It did not. In the 1990s, Tony Mockbell had a money-making machine hidden in a crappy house in Brunswick producing about $80 million of speed before it exploded in February 1997. Well, it's not in this crappy house in Brunswick, is it? It's is it under a... the stairs, Barney? Where is your money-making machine? It's not in this crappy house in Brunswick. <laughs> Damn! Uh, Tony had many partners, including the Morans. They had trusted Tony to store precious precursor chemicals in the house. When it burnt down, the Morans were told their $300,000 worth of pseudo-ephedrine had been destroyed. But Tony had moved it and kept it for himself, Tara. With his new partner, Carl Williams, they made millions. They made so many millions. October 13th, 1999 was Carl's 29th birthday, and he had a morning date with mum and dad to celebrate. 
As Barbara iced the cake, she wondered why Carl was late and he hadn't called. When Carl eventually arrived at home at midday, he did not look well. What's wrong with you? She asked, following him into the bedroom. Nothing, just going to have a lie down, said Carl. A while later, Carl called his father in for a chat. When Barbara was finally allowed into Carl's room, she saw George examining a small hole in the left side of Carl's rather large stomach, a gunshot wound. Always practically minded, Carl wondered whether he could just ignore it. It didn't hurt much. Maybe they could just forget about it and let the wound heal on its own. He'd heard that if you can stop the bleeding from a gunshot wound, surgery is not always necessary, especially if the bullet goes right through you without hitting any major organs. But the bullet didn't go right through him. Oh, whoops. He got stuck in his gut. It did. His fat gut. Five hours after the shooting, Carl reluctantly agreed to go to the hospital. The bullet had hit a layer of fat and muscle and travelled straight downwards, lodging inside Carl's pelvis beside his love junk. <laughs> so him being a bit tubby saved his life. Yeah, well, I would like to think me being a little bit tubby might save mine too. After surgery, Carl asked if he could have the bullet. He wanted to put it in a frame behind his bar, next to his Muhammad Ali gloves and Scarface portraits. He was gutted to learn that the cops had taken his souvenir away as evidence. Oh, come on, guys, let me have the bullet. Oh, I want to put it next to my prize possessions. <laughs> when police interviewed Carl, he told a pretty simple and stupid story. He said he'd been walking along the road and had been knocked out by someone he hadn't seen. When he woke up, he found a hole in his tummy. <laughs> in his tummy? He had no idea how it happened or who had done it. Yeah, Carl, sounds legit. <laughs> I don't know, officer. I just got a hole in my tummy. But the police already knew what had occurred. The Moran brothers had been picked up on listening devices, bragging that they had taught the fat boy, as they called him, a lesson. The Morans had also sent a friend to the hospital to make sure that Carl wasn't talking to the popo. Yeah, make sure you don't talk to the jacks, Carl. Mm-hmm, don't do it. Later, Jason Moran followed it up with a threatening phone call. He told Carl he wanted his twenty-two slug back and he would be coming to get it. Yeah, Carl thought to himself, you'll be getting it back, you dog. This was a major plot point in the escalating gangland war of Melbourne. Just why the shooting occurred is the subject of many conflicting stories and theories. Maybe it was because Carl had pissed off Jason by taking up with Roberta, the wife of their friend Dean Stevens, though it was far more likely about money or Carl's increasing dominance in the drug trade. I actually heard it was about the, the they were arguing about who owned a piano. Oh. There, was, there was that story as well. Oh, but. I didn't hear that. But I heard that if they'd actually fatally shot Carl that day, um, a lot of the gangland violence that went down afterwards would never have happened. Yeah, that's right. Jason was saying to Mark, shoot him in the head, yeah. put him down. Yeah, and then Mark went, no, I'm going to shoot him in his tummy. And the rest <laughs> is history. Yeah. Barbara was disappointed that Carl had got together with Roberta. She thought she was a vulgar slapper bogan. Mm -hmm. Roberta had been made a ward of the state when she was 11 and grew up on the rough streets of Frankston, where um, the uh, largest revolving dance floor on the Mornington Peninsula is. Yeah, well, if that doesn't make it rough and tumble, I don't know what will. Uh, Roberta, she was aggressive and tough and already had kids with two other men. Barb thought he was making a big mistake. Roberta was crass and loud, and every second word from her mouth was fuck or cunt. <laughs> I don't really see what's wrong with that. <laughs> <laughs> Carl loved Roberta. He even wanted to get a dog with her and name it after his favourite villain, Caster Troy, which is Nicholas Cage's character from Face Off. 
I mean, come on. Out of all the villains in all the land, you're picking that one? Yeah, give me back my face. Oh, yeah. Isn't that the tagline of that movie? <laughs> yeah, it is. Give me back my face. Anyway, their relationship was a car crash waiting to happen. Oh, absolutely. Roberta was an ally as well as a lover, and she did a Lady Macbeth routine by encouraging him to take revenge on the Moran brothers. Mm -hmm. She especially hated Jason and Mark Moran's wives, Trisha and Antonella. Those bitch snobs had looked down on her as white trash. They had shitbagged Roberta for years and never tried to help her on the several occasions when her ex-husband, Dean Stevens, had beaten her. They were just fakes through and through, with their silicon tits and expensive fake teeth and dyed hair. They shunned me from the beginning because they thought they were better than me. They didn't give a fuck if Dean killed me and the kids. All they cared about was money and living like fucking royalty. But their husbands made their money just like we did, from drugs. That's you, you do a great Roberta. Oh, good. <laughs> I don't know. There's something about her tone of phrase that excites me a little <laughs> That's bit. Pretty good, isn't it? <laughs> Judy Moran, the matriarch of the Moran crime family, was even worse, according to Roberta. She was a common shoplifter parading around as though she was a member of the aristocracy. Their whole shit show of family unity was a charade, with Judy being beaten constantly by her husband, Moran patriarch Lewis. Oh, my God, there's just so much violence everywhere for these people. Judy Moran's father once described Judy as... The greatest cunt that God has ever put breath into and always will be. Jeez, thanks, Dad. (laughs) Man, Roberta and Jason Moran had history too. Banging history. Mm. Roberta also alleges Jason and Mark had set up her ex-husband Dean with a large amount of hash. He'd done a year's jail over it, and when he got out, the Morans had made him pay them back $15,000 for the drug he had lost. Oh, harsh. Roberta wanted Carl to kill the lot of them. The first shot in the gangland war that would claim more than 30 lives had been fired. On June 15th, 2000, 35-year-old Mark Moran was getting into his car outside his Aberfeldy mansion when shotgun blasts knocked him down. He ended up lying across the front seats, his head resting against the passenger door. He was almost cut in half. A neighbour who was a nurse rushed to the car in an attempt to help. I could see there was blood coming from his nose and mouth and because of the angle of his head, the blood had run into his eyes and face and hair. I noticed that his eyes were open and at this point I realised that he was deceased. Mark Moran was pronounced dead just after midnight. Lewis, Jason and members of the Carlton crew gathered, but there was no discussion of retaliation. They had no idea who had killed Mark. Carl was not even suspected, as they all thought he was weak and wouldn't have the balls for such an audacious hit. Long-time associate of the Morans, Bert Rout, was there and later described it. Integrity and honour died that night. It wasn't only Mark that perished, but with him went those simpering, spineless assholes with hearts as big as peas. His so-called friends, they vaporised overnight. While death notices painted Mark Moran as a loyal friend and loving father, Detective Inspector Brian Ricks of the Homicide Squad said, Mark fancied himself as a bit of a heavy. People who deal in underworld activities, nefarious activities most of us don't get involved in. They live in a different world to us and violence isn't uncommon to them. Mark's stepfather Lewis Moran was devastated. He'd lost his right-hand man. Carl Williams arrogantly strutted his blonde-tipped hair around Melbourne, dressed in a designer T-shirt and a pair of shorts. He now called himself the Premier. Because I run this fucking state. 
In 2001, Carl and Roberta had a daughter named Dakota. It seems she wasn't named after the American state, though, because they spelt it D-H-A-K-O-T-A. Well, either that or they couldn't spell. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not sure. On April 15th, 2003, Nikolai, the Russian Radev, was shot seven times in the head and chest. Despite only having worked for eight months in his life during the 1980s in a fish and chip shop, when he was killed, Radev was wearing Versace clothing and a $20,000 watch. Radev was trying to steal Carl's drug cook, but Carl was on to him and had him knocked. Because having people killed was getting as normal for Carl as changing underwear is for most of us. Well, as normal for him as eating some fucking fried chicken. Ah, KFC, Maccas, anything deep fried. (laughs) Yeah. According to police, Radev was an enforcer for the Melbourne head of the Russian Mafia, who specialised in robbing drug dealers. During his life, he was jailed for assault, blackmail, threats to kill, extortion, firearms offences, armed robbery and drug charges. Once Radev raped a man in front of his wife and kids just to teach him a lesson. Oh, my fucking God. I just... It's dick. Yeah, this guy's gross. Oh, the whole... The whole... The whole thing's kind of gross, but that's... That's like the gross cherry on top of the other gross yeah, Sunday. Yeah, it's a gross... Yeah, it's a shit pie. Oh, man. He was buried in a $35,000 gold-plated coffin. It was so heavy it took 12 pallbearers to carry it. Carl thought it looked like a pretty sweet way to rot for eternity. (laughs) On June 21, 2003, Carl Williams put out a hit on Jason Moran. Jason and his bodyguard, Pasquale Barbaro, were shot dead while sitting in their van at a children's football clinic. This was the most brazen and shocking murder yet, as it was in broad daylight in front of hundreds of witnesses, including dozens of young children. When the man in the balaclava and gloves pointed a gun at him, Jason had no time to reach into his pants for his pistol. A shotgun blasted through the glass, followed by volleys from a long-handled revolver. As the children in the back of the van screamed and were splattered with blood, Mm. Jason Moran and his mate were blown away in an execution that shocked a city already used to years of gangland violence. The masked gunman who struck at an innocent football match invaded the public consciousness in a way years of previous killings had not. It made front-page news and led to the formation of the Piranha Task Force because before then, all of these homicides um, that were being created in the underworld were being investigated separately. Yeah, no as, one was as, sharing as just info. homicides. Yeah, so like finally they were connecting the dots and getting all the communication running through with like other departments and focusing on trying to end this shit. Yeah. Previously, there had been a sense among some that the underworld was eating its own with no harm done to the broader community. But the murders of Jason Moran and his pal in front of children at Cross Keys had changed all that. It was also a turning point that would finally put some of the gangland war's key players on a collision course with law enforcement, including the newly crowned kingpin of Melbourne, Carl Williams. Senior Sergeant Roland Legg was at home when he received a phone call at 11.30am. Mr Legg, in customary policeman style, told the media the scene inside Moran's Mitsubishi passenger van was messy. There was relief and astonishment that the children in the back of the van were totally physically unharmed, he said. Mr Legg said that within hours, intelligence was being received that a 20-year career criminal known only as The Runner was responsible. He had a long criminal history marked by prison breaks and armed robberies in which he made his escape on foot. 
rather than in a getaway car. Hmm. At Cross Keys, the killer had shown a good deal of speed to outrun a pursuing off-duty police officer. The runner was known to be extremely close to Carl Williams. It's rumoured that they'd become friendly after meeting in jail. Well, it's not like they met at the gym or training for a marathon, is it? They might have met at KFC. (laughs) Well, I don't know if the runner's that fast. I don't think he was getting a lot of KFC. There were plenty of people who had cause to wish Jason Moran dead, but the Williams crew was clearly on top of the list. With Jason Moran dead, the Williams celebrated with the christening of Little Dakota. Oh, that's nice. The after party was more of a coronation for King Carl. The $150,000 shindig at Crown Casino was a star-studded affair with performances from pop star Vanessa Ann Morosi and old Australian rocker Brian Cadd. I wonder if they knew what they were performing at. Just a little bit of sunshine <laughs> coming to the world. That's what Brian Cadd sang Yeah, that little bit of sunshine, sunshine in the shape of a girl. In the well, shape of a girl. It's relevant. Yeah. To lie low, Carl moved into a 30th floor apartment in the city with his best pal, hitman Andrew Benji Veneman. Roberta was not impressed. He didn't give a fuck if his family was safe. He just did it so he and Andrew could root their sluts in peace. (laughs) (laughs) You know what? I actually wish that Roberta Williams and Chopper Reed had got together. Because can you imagine just like those conversations? It'd be like, who's afraid of Virginia Woolf amped up to the max 24-7? The following month, Carl Williams' next target turned out to be drug-dealing hot dog salesman Michael Marshall, executed at his home in South Yarra in front of his five-year-old son. Don't keep doing things in front of children. Now, this was under the orders of Tony Mockbell, who um, thought he had killed one of his mates, PK. But actually, Carl had killed him. And so, Carl killed this other guy, Michael Marshall, just so Tony Ah, Mockbell... To keep him sweet. Yeah, yeah. And so that Mockbell would never realise that it was Carl. On August 17th, 2003... Carl employed four men to interrogate and torture drug trafficker Mark Malia with a soldering iron. Carl had paid $100,000 to Benji Veneman and four other men to interrogate Malia about drug money he believed had been hidden from him. After torturing him for hours, they eventually strangled him. A team of firemen found Malia's badly burnt body in a melted wheelie bin at around 8pm that night after they were called to a fire in a stormwater drain near a West Sunshine soccer club. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. On November 17th, 2003, Carl was arrested for threatening to kill a policeman and his wife. The Piranha Task Force had a listening device in the Williams' home, but Carl knew it was there and was just baiting police. Oh, good one. Now, what was said, actually, I can tell you what was yeah. said. He threatened to kill this policeman and said that he was going to um, knock his wife. But it wasn't actually knock that he No, said. he actually said he was going to fuck his wife. Yeah. Only if she was into it, man. <laughs> yeah. So, 
Piranha were desperate to get him off the streets. They knew this charge wouldn't stick, but taking Carl off the streets for a few days might save some lives. Later, when he was bailed and leaving court, Judy Moran confronted Carl as he walked to his car. Why won't you admit it? You murdered both my children. TV cameras captured this moment and a media storm ensued. Detective Inspector Jim O'Brien said of the media's response at the time, It suited a lot of people's agenda to make him smarter than he was. They were turning him into a crime king of the world. My attitude is that he's just a mug from Brody with his ass out of his pants. (laughs) Well, that is one perspective. Actually, it's a few perspectives. In December 2003, Carl put a hit out on Graham the Munster Kinneberg. Hitman Stephen Asling and his friend Terence Blewett carried out the execution. The self-appointed premier had initially contracted them to murder Louis Moran, who he had a powerful hatred for. But several months later, they still had not succeeded. Slippery sucker. Lewis had also tried to put out a hit on Carl, but he was such a tight ass that he only offered $20,000, which was peanuts to professional hitmen. Carl told them that if they couldn't bump off Lewis, they should kill the monster, one-time master safecracker and Lewis's BFF. The two men had lain in wait for the monster to return home on the night he was murdered. Aisling acted as a decoy, yelling, Oi, dog! at Graham as he got out of his car. But old man Munster was carrying and he was surprisingly light on his feet, Tara. He got a shot off, but it was no use. Terence Blewett jumped out from behind some bushes and put three bullets into him, killing him instantly. Graham the Munster Kinneberg was cool-headed and well-respected in the criminal world. He was renowned for solving disputes and despised violence of any kind. One reporter described him as more Kissinger than Dillinger. Oh, that's a good line. Yeah, it's a good line, isn't it? He was what old-time police called a good and honest crook. He lived by the code. Yeah, well, these new up-and-coming drug kingpins did not live by any of those codes. No, they did not. The Munster's safe-cracking heists in the late 1970s and early 1980s were legendary. The Munster was the brain behind the fabled Magnetic Drill Gang, which had gotten away with several million dollars in that time. Mm, yeah, he was quite wealthy. On March 31, 2004, Carl Hitman finally got to Lewis Moran. The Moran patriarch was shot dead at the Brunswick Club, an inner suburban Melbourne hotel that's actually just up the road from where it we are now. It's like five minutes walk. The payment was $150,000. Well, see, that's kind of what you need to pay to get the job done at that point anyway. Standing at his usual corner of the main bar, his back against the wall, Lewis had just ended a mobile phone call when he saw two gunmen enter the club. He turned to his drinking buddy, Bert Rout, with a look of terror on his face. Rout later described his friend's reaction as... Lewis went to water then, started to fucking cry. He gave up like a prick balloon. (laughs) Lewis ran for his life down a corridor as one of the gunmen chased him down. Standing by the doorway, the other gunman raised his handgun and pointed it at Bert. One thought ran through Bert's mind at the time. Oh shit, I'm fucked. Bert tried to kick the second gunman, who fired at him in response. The bullet hit Bert in the arm and powered through into his chest, where it shattered and did terrible damage to major organs. Bert said that it hit him like a freight train. Meanwhile, the first gunman caught up with Louis Moran. Lewis cowered, with his hands up in front of him in a futile attempt at self-defence. The gunman's shotgun jammed, so he pulled out a powerful handgun. He put two bullets into Lewis's head at very close range. Back at the bar, Bert Rout had his own problems. 
His lifeless right arm was hanging by threads. He was stunned and bleeding profusely. The second gunman said to Bert... Got you now, old man. Bert replied... Go and get fucked, you weak cunt. (laughs) The next thing I know, this bloke's firing off more shots. I must have been ducking and weaving. Don't know what I was doing. I sort of staggered and hung onto the bar. I didn't want to go down. By the time a blood-soaked Bert did fall down, the second shooter's handgun was empty and Louis Moran lay dead. The gunman fled the scene. When paramedics wheeled Bert past Lewis's body, Bert asked about his mate's welfare. He was dead before he hit the floor, one of the paramedics replied. Lewis Moran was described by many as a dog, a coward, a sadist, a wife-eater and a sexual predator, with stories of him raping young inmates whilst in prison on drug charges in 2003. Mm, yeah, he's not a Mr. Congeniality, is no, he? No, he's not a nice guy. Mm. One week earlier, Carlton crew member Mick Gatto, who was a friend of the Morans, had shot Williams's close friend and hitman Benji Veneman dead in self-defence during a wrestle over a revolver in a restaurant corridor. Veneman had pulled a thirty-eight Smith and Wesson on him. Oh no, Benji! Yeah, not a good idea, mate. On March 30th, 2004, which was the day before the Brunswick Club hit, Veneman was buried after an open casket funeral, morticians having restored his face and neck, which had been, like, destroyed with the bullets. That's some fine work. Yeah, morticians do good jobs. Carl was once again banned from Crown Casino by then-Victoria Police Commissioner Christine Nixon in April 2004. With the Morans decimated, it was time for Carl to tidy up the few less ends that remained. There was still one member of the Carlton crew who needed to get got. Mario Condello was the money man of the old school inner Melbourne crime gang. Carl enlisted two knuckleheads to kill Mario, but the Piranha Task Force was listening. Both were apprehended minutes from Mario's Brighton home, guns in hand. When thrown to the ground by police carrying machine guns, one started crying and the other shit his pants. Literally. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> Both were very quick to toss Carl under the bus and sang like shitbirds. Mario Condello knew they were coming and thought he'd better get in first. He was secretly taped talking about Carl Williams and saying that... Until this fucking cunt is put in a hole, there'll be no peace. He also wanted George and Roberta Williams dead too. But Mario's choice of hitman was a police informer. Uh Uh-oh. And he was charged with conspiracy to murder. Mario Condello didn't make it to trial, though, because he was shot dead outside of his garage two years later. Sean Sonnet apparently did that. Ah, oh, makes sense. We've talked about him in earlier episodes. Mm-hmm. The law was nipping at Carl Williams's heels. On October 29, 2004, after a long and grueling investigation by Victoria Police, Carl was finally charged with drug trafficking and was sentenced to seven years in prison. Oh, fucking finally. Carl's hitmen were now all dead or in jail. The living ones started scrambling to get deals and they all started squealing like little piglets. The Piranha Task Force finally had what they needed to put Carl Williams away for good. On May 19th, 2006, Carl was sentenced to 27 years for ordering the murder of drug-dealing hot dog salesman Michael Marshall. A year later, he was sentenced to 35 years for the murder of Louis Moran, Jason Moran and Mark Malia. In letters to family and friends, Carl spoke of his sentences for the four murders as though they were hurdles facing a heroic man. It is one hell of a hill to climb and one hell of a battle to fight. However, I have no doubt that I will continue to fight it day by day, month by month, year by year. I know the authorities won't be happy until they have pushed me over the limit, but they are wasting their time. They won't succeed, I assure you. 
Just as Betty King saw a lot of Carl Williams during this time before her in court... The magnitude of his crime wave was not lost on her. Yeah, in fact, she had this to say. These offences occurred during an extraordinary time in the history of this city, in that there was an almost unprecedented level of very public murders of known or suspected criminals. You do not get to be judge, jury and executioner. These were not vigilante killings. They were matters of expediency to you. These people were either in your way as competitors or persons that you believed may be vengeful towards you or because of some animosity that you bore towards them. As the counsellor and procurer, you were indeed the puppet master, deciding and controlling whether people lived or died. Nice one, Betty King. Yeah, she um, was pretty cluey. chicken-eating motherfucker, Carl <laughs> Williams. Yeah, put him in his place. With Carl no longer the Premier of Melbourne's underworld, things began falling apart for the Weems family. His father, George, was sentenced to four and a half years for drug trafficking in November 2007. A year later, Barbara was found dead in her Essendon home after overdosing on sleeping pills. Apparently, this, you know, just to see her boy go to jail just broke her heart. Oh, yeah. Yeah. She always thought he would get out, and she always thought he did the right thing. She knew about him killing people. You know, it was just, I'm protecting the family. That was their thing. Yeah, it was the whole, like, I'm just doing this to protect the family from a situation that you put them in, mind you. Yeah, that's right. Delusions, man. Yeah, I guess you got to believe what you got to believe to get through if you're yeah. in a very bizarre criminal situation. Carl was refused leave to attend his mother's funeral, but his tribute was read out and it said, There's nothing in the world that I would not have done for you. Losing you is the hardest thing I have ever had to deal with. <sighs> in 2011, gangland widow Judy Moran, whose husband and sons were killed on Carl's order, was convicted of arranging the murder of her brother-in-law, Des Tuppence Moran. Apparently because he wasn't worth tuppence. Oh, is that worth, why he was called that? That I was, was where the nickname <laughs> came from, yeah. He was shot seven times at a Melbourne cafe in 2009 by Jeff Nuts Armour. I love that all these guys have, like, funky nicknames. Hey, Nuts, go and get us some chips. Nah. Moran was sent... <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> it's all right. Moran was arrested after a police surveillance team watched her dump the getaway car that had earlier been found in her garage. Police also found the gun that killed Des Moran and other items, including the gunman's disguise, in a safe at her house. She was sentenced to 26 years. I, lo- I loved watching that play out, by the way, in the media. Oh, uh, yeah. She was just saying, oh, this is trumped up charges, corrupt police. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know? Oh, no, they're just trying to like make us look bad because we've got, yeah. I yeah, and, but she was a dumb criminal. To have all that stuff in her house. She put it in her safe. I mean, come on. Yeah. But I, I don't know that we're necessarily covering a Mensa think tank here, you know? Yeah. You know why she wanted to kill him? Um, Money. He controlled the purse strings and uh, he cut her off. He gave her an allowance for a while, but she wanted more oh, and they had an enough. argument. Yeah. And he cut her off and apparently he slapped her across the face in a public place. He where slapped her across her public place. That's right. And she was humiliated. And uh, yeah. You, yeah. Don't humiliate these people. They will kill you. Apparently the, the uh, sisters-in-law had something to do with it too, but they got off. I don't know. Allegedly. 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 Anyway, back to Carl. In order to try to get his sentences reduced, Carl had turned dog. Uh-oh. Which is the biggest no-no a prison inmate can commit in the eyes of his peers. That's for sure. He told police he had arranged the murders of police informer Terry Hodson and his wife Christine in May 2004 and was happy to implicate others. 
Rumours were rife in Barwon Prison that he was going to be paid $1 million by police to reveal all the dirt he had on everyone. Secrets were flying out of the tubby bastard like candy from a piñata. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> on April 19th, 2010, there were revelations in the media that Carl's nine-year-old daughter, Dakota's, uh, private school fees were being paid for by Victoria Police. And they were. And this was on f- this was front-page news. Yeah, and so everyone heard about it, right? Including right. the other inmates. Later that day, Carl Williams, the 39-year-old wobbly-bottomed kingpin of the Melbourne underworld, was sitting alone in the day room of a high-security unit in Barwon Prison when one of his cellmates, Matthew Johnson, came up behind him holding the steel-saddled stem of an exercise bike. Without warning, he smashed it down on Williams's skull. Several more blows followed and Williams was pronounced dead soon after. So just a little bit about uh, Matthew Johnson. He's called the General. He's in charge of uh, the POWs, the Prisoners of War, which is the biggest gang in in in, in Melbourne prisons. Well, yeah, because it used to be the Overcoat Gang, and then they yeah. turned into the Prisoners of War, right? That's right. So yeah, we've talked about him before. Yeah, we have. Yeah, we have. He's um he's got like a hundred and twenty convictions for. Oh, and most of them were after he went to jail. Like seventy yeah. something of them were after he was incarcerated. Stabbing police officers. Uh, sorry, prison uh, inmates, officers. Inmates. Oh, just yeah. he's he's. It's kind of funny. It's like he Uh. was a criminal and then he went to jail and he became a much bigger criminal within jail. Well, one of the first people he met when he went to prison was Chopper Reed. He took him under his wing. Yeah, exactly, and showed him how to do it. So I guess that's what we're dealing with. So Carl had struck a deal with the Victorian police that required him to provide information on several unsolved murders in which police corruption was suspected. Whoa. Mm -hmm. When word of this reached the streets, he became a marked man in the underworld. I mean, you know, it, it actually got... It, it was in the morning papers and he was dead by midday. Yeah. Yeah. Seriously. Williams's funeral was held on April 30th, 2010 at St. Teresa's Catholic Church in Essendon, which is where all of the big gangster funerals were held. Yeah, that, at that time, yeah. And get this, he was buried in a gold-plated coffin. Oh, just like Nick the Russian rabbit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no. he was like, I want me one of those for eternity to rot in. Carl's father, George, would later say, despite the sorrow of losing his son, the murderer had been an act of mercy. He's out of there now. His soul is free. They can't hurt him no more. Fame had transformed his son from a common criminal into an ageless cult legend. He belongs to the world now, says George Williams. His dad is so poetic about a man who caused so much death, often in front of innocent children. I mean, come on. Yeah, I know. On August 27, 2017, Roberta Williams announced she would run against opposition leader Bill Shorten at the next federal election. <laughs> Roberta, Roberta is hoping to be pre-selected as a candidate for the Australian People's Party, but her status as a convicted drug trafficker is likely to hinder her bid. So Roberta spent six months in jail in 2006 for trafficking 8,000 ecstasy tablets that she got out of Mark Moran's <laughs> ass. No, uh, no, okay. no, she didn't. Um, so that was supplied to an undercover police officer. Apparently. Oh, and he was I feeling bad about uh, offering a joint to like an off-duty police officer at the meetup. But no, Roberta's totally overshadowed me. Thank fuck. Well, this is what Roberta had to say about her uh, running for a seat in Parliament. So many wrongs have been done to me and other people that I believe need to be fixed, and the government at the moment doesn't seem to know how to do that. She told reporters outside her Melbourne home. When questioned about the bid, Bill Shorten said, just when I thought politics couldn't get any more interesting. (laughs) 
Carl's 16-year-old daughter Dakota has told the media that she was still a toddler when he was arrested and visiting him in jail became her childhood normality. Hello, my little princess. I hope you are well and looking after your teeth. He'd write to her on a prison computer, decorating the pages by adding clip art images of teddy bears and butterflies. She grew up only vaguely aware of his crimes, and as the awareness grew, she formed the belief that he did what he did only to protect his family. I guess she heard that from her grandma a bit. I simply kill people who are planning to kill me. He wrote that to her in a letter. Um, She actually said, I don't see him as a killer. That's not what I saw. We know our dad is our dad, as fun and loving and caring for us. I mean, you know, she's in a difficult situation and I respect that she wants to think the best of her father. Well, nothing's ever black and white too. He could have been a great dad. Yeah, actually, it's possible to be all these things at once for sure. That's right. He he had delusions that he was protecting his family and that's... I don't know. Well, that's kind of... They all lived under that same delusion in a way. Yeah. Jim O'Brien, the former head of the Piranha Task Force that brought Williams down, has a different view. He may well have been a doting father. I knew him as a monster. He was also a coward. He ordered hits and didn't pull the trigger. It was easy for him to get on with his life. As a witness, he had limited value. A convicted murderer. It doesn't matter how much lipstick you put on a pig, it's still a pig. (laughs) Carl Williams was jailed for ordering or performing gangland murders, but even his lawyer and his killer say he was gutless. In a taped prison phone call, Carl's murderer Matthew Johnson said, He's a fat fucking sook, (laughs) and he bit off more than he can chew. In here, mate, he's just another bare bum in the fucking shower block. Or he was. Yeah, and out there, the only reason he got away with so much is because no one suspected he was a fucking idiot. (laughs) The quotes in this are just, Wow. Carl Williams' lawyer, Peter Farris QC, told the media he wasn't academically gifted, he was stupid. In the end, George Williams, who feared for his life and went into witness protection after Carl's murder, actually, um, you know, Matthew Johnson had had contracted some people to take a few shots at him. Yeah, 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 he wanted him gone too. They like wiping out families, don't they? Yeah, well, eventually George's heart gave out and he died on on his front doorstep of his secret home. Now, at that point, um, he was living with Barbara's sister Kathleen, wasn't he? He was. Because they they had a secret love child and then later on they got back together when they They were older. They got back 30 years later. That's crazy. While Barbara was still alive, by the way, she she'd been she'd moved out to Essendon in a house that Carl had bought her, and um, yeah, George and Kathleen had been living together for say fifteen years when he died. It, it's romantic, yeah. just like Romeo and Juliet, and it is because I don't find Romeo and Juliet that romantic. Oh, <laughs> so there yeah, you go. Banging your wife's sister is not romantic. That's just um, <laughs> that's, well, not the way you do it. That's just white trash, as far as I'm concerned. I'm sorry. Yeah, it's some Jerry Springer shit, mate. Yeah. Carl Williams displayed reckless ambivalence when he had enemies and drug competitors, both real and perceived, murdered. He not only shaped Melbourne's criminal landscape, but laid it to waste. Carl always believed that no matter how cruel and dirty his dealings were, he had always done the right thing. I can look in the mirror and I'm proud of the person I see. My family can always hold their head up high as I stood for what I believed in. I never sold my soul to the devil and I never will. Life isn't about waiting for the storm to pass. It's about learning to dance in the rain. Oh, my God. You're killing everyone and you're talking about dancing in the 
fucking rain. Uh, it sounds like Belinda Carlisle lyrics, oh, doesn't it? Oh my god, it sounds like any NAF song you could ever fucking hear. Yeah. Dance in the rain like no one's watching. Like, oh, for fuck's sake. I know. But I mean, I, I love that quote though, because it, it's just, it's so saccharine and ridiculous. Yeah. And uh, why not at this point? He really <laughs> never showed any remorse. Well, why would he? He, he thought he was a fucking hero, man. Yeah. And so many Bogan fucking kids out from Broadie thought he was a hero too because he came from, like, you know, the sticks and he got shit done and maybe they can be gangsters too. Like, he's a role model for some people, which is crazy. Wow. <sighs> the crazy story of Carl Williams. We did it. So, Frankie Lasagna actually suggested on Twitter that we cover Carl Williams. And you know what? We thought that was a good idea, Frankie. Oh, Frankie Lasagna. <laughs> oh, Frank Lasagna. I'm not sure everyone knows the song. Uh, Frankie, my boy, don't you know? You yeah, haven't got, got the, the voice, voice to sing Calypso. Calypso. Um, who's up? Avalanches, Australian yeah. band. Hey, I've got two questions for you, Tara. Are, mm -hmm. are you wearing pyjama pants? And what the fuck is Ozzy as? Uh, yes, I am wearing pyjama pants. I thought you got to have all the fun with your weird collots and jorts and shit. And, I, well, I remember when you came over today, I went, I feel like just wearing my pyjamas. Do you reckon that's okay? And you were like, yeah, who are you trying to impress? The guy that sells us sausages outside the supermarket? He was pretty, I think he was impressed. Well, I hope he was, but I was no. like, yeah, fuck it. I'm wearing pyjamas all day. I've got long pants on today. I'm a grown-up. You seem like a growing man for a change. It's quite refreshing. Sonia, what is this Aussie as bullshit? Well, Aussie as are stories of criminal stupidity with a quintessentially Australian flavour. I'd think by this many episodes in, you'd know that, Barney. Well, I would like to hear one now, please. Well, I will tell you one then. Thank you. Today, I'm going to tell the story behind one of the NT News' most famous front pages. Well, the NT News is a, a Northern Territory newspaper that does some ridiculous stories. Yeah, we we did an Aussie as once. You did it. It was on uh, Kevin the Horny Ghost. Oh, yeah, yeah, that was a good yeah, one. Yeah, that came from there. there oh. It's full of, well, ridiculous stuff. So the Why I Stuck a Cracker Up My Clacker front page story was an instant classic and won its headline writer a Walkley Award, which is the highest award in Australian journalism. Then editor Matt Cunningham said, I remember saying in the morning that we needed to find this bloke because I wanted to run a headline along the lines of why I stuck a cracker up my ass." Then deputy editor Paul Dyer volunteered, why I stuck a cracker up my clacker? Uh, a biscuit in my bot bot? Not that kind of cracker. Oh, you mean a, like a firecracker? Up my clacker. And the rest is history. Um, although apparently they don't actually know why the guy is sculling a beer that has a snake wrapped around it in the picture. They're the one who ran the picture and they don't actually know why that's true. So Tara, I have a question for you. Mm -hmm. So... So it's not a salada in my enchilada. It's not a salada in your enchilada. <laughs> it, it certainly isn't that. It's also not a chocolate chip cookie in your Wookiee. Right, so um, this is definitely a firecracker in the house. Oh, well, so, this is getting interesting. <laughs> Cunningham then secretly entered the headline into the Walkley Awards. Dyer was named a finalist and went on to win the prestigious Headline of the Year Award. That's journalism awards, isn't it? Yeah. yeah uh, the win prompted a shit ton of outrage from more serious publications who claimed the victory had demeaned the value of the award. I think it's enriched it. Oh, completely. But it was really funny because when he accepted the award, Dyer commented, I think I've single-handed 
single-handedly ruined the reputations of both the Walkleys and the NT News by winning this. <laughs> so do you want to hear what the story was actually uh, about? Yeah, I do. Alrighty. So 23-year-old Alex Bowden of Darwin, probably nicknamed like Bowdo or Bowders, he put a spinning flying bee winged firework in his butt crack during a party at a rented house in Rapid Creek because he wanted to show his visiting mates a good time. I mean, if you can think of a better way of doing it, Cambo visited us several weeks ago. We should have done that to impress oh, him. Sorry, Cambo. Sorry, Cambo. Fuck a longer. Anyway, what he said was, "Oh, I had a few lads out from Queensland, and I had to put on a good show. I just had a few beers with the boys and let off a few firecrackers, and then I put one in me ass. <laughs> <laughs> Didn't burn my balls on my back, just my fingers and me ass." It was a pretty loose one, eh? Um, so this guy, Baudo, was a fitter and turner, and the cracker burnt his butt cheeks and the fingers on his right hand, which he had to use to pull the flaming cracker out of his butt crack. His mate, Reese McEwen, said, I oh, screamed a little bit and there were a fair few F-words. Um, Baudo denied that he shed any tears during the incident, going, Oh, you can't sit here crying. His mate then drove him to the Royal Darwin Hospital Burns Unit, where he remained for a few days. His only request was, a big shout out to the boys in Dolby, which is the Queensland town that he grew up in. <laughs> Baudo said that his mother thought it was funny, eh? It's not as bad as everyone's saying, he said. The police confiscated the fireworks when they arrived at the house. And you'll be happy to hear that no permanent damage was done to Baldo's hands or his clacker. Oh, oh I'm glad Baldo's anus got out of this alive. <laughs> it did. Apparently he could even walk afterwards like he was fine. And I bet he showed his mates from Dalby a really good time. Hey, Tara, that was fantastic. <laughs> oh, it was, it was special. I'll give it that. Hey, um, thanks for listening, and thanks to our patrons. If you would like to support us, visit our website. That's bloodymurderpodcast.com. Um, look, you might just want to buy us a drink. There's a PayPal donate button there, too. Mm -hmm. There's also a link to our fabulous merch store. Oh, there's some good shit on there. Uh, I've been Barney Black. And I've been Tara Saraband. And we just did some bloody murder. Please don't forget to review us on iTunes. And, of course, rate and subscribe. It really helps us. Uh, join our Facebook group, Bloody Murder Podcast, if you're ready to have that good of a time. And follow us on Twitter and Snapchat and Instagram. All the things. Check out our website, bloodymurderpodcast.com, for news, galleries, more episodes and merchandise. It's got all the things. It really does. Instead of our usual fade out this week, we're actually going to play a clip of Chopper Reed talking about Carl Williams, because not only is what he had to say about him true, it's also fucking funny because Chopper knows how to sum shit up. Yeah, he certainly does. Mm -hmm. So thanks for listening and we'll be back next week. Goodbye and adios. And keep kicking against the pricks. Carl Williams is about, I'm 55 years old. He's, he's about, um, how old would he be, 30-something? When I was running around, Carl Williams would be playing with his Meccano set. <laughs> in 1987, uh, 77, when I was running around, uh, it's no use saying to me, like, did I ever have the guts to have a go at Carl Williams? Of course I would. I, I would have nailed Carl Williams' hands to a coffee table and just, and just pulled it out of his backside. Carl Williams is a wobbly-bottomed little cherub-faced, cherub-faced cherub little boy who, 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 who's, 
whose life would be in, in danger if he stepped into any shower block in any jail in the country, right? Uh, that's, that's just because you're a drug lord. Yeah, please don't think that you can, that, 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 that you've got any respect in the jail. In jail, people with respect are people that can flat fight crash machines or are very, very quick with a hammer or an iron bar and will use it instantly. lying that it wasn't on and they were using sonic pressure on my head since 1997. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.